0: Well, good morning, everybody. You can uh, find your seats and, again, continue conversations, hopefully after service, if you've met some new folks or just need to continue a conversation. Um, we are in our series in the book of Deuteronomy, and uh, we are um, going to be in that all summer long, and so I encourage you to, to take a look at that uh, and be ready for that as we read through it. Uh, we'll be in chapter 15 this morning, um, and I just remembered that I forgot to update the webpage, so you'll have to just use Bible Gateway and go to chapter 15. Um And uh, we've been talking through the idea that Yahweh is giving you, okay? So the book of Deuteronomy is Moses' last words. These are the last words he gives to God's people before he knows he's going to die. He knows he's going to go be with the Lord. He knows that the end is near for him. He knows that this is it. He's not getting into the promised land because if you remember, God's people have been wandering around in the wilderness 40 years because of their disobedience. And in God's grace, he didn't annihilate them. He said, I'll give your children the future. And so the people of God are waiting, and now Moses is giving this last word, this last testimony to God's people in the book of Deuteronomy before he knows it's his time. And so he's just making sure they know everything. He's laying it all out, last will and testament of God's words, so that they know that when they go into the promised land, and Joshua, who will be leading the people, reminds them of these things, okay, that they'll remember that, oh yeah, that wasn't 40 years ago God said that. That was like last week before we did this. And so... It's a reminder. It's a rehash of Exodus, Leviticus, and the other books, and Moses is reminding. This morning, when you look in chapter 15 and when you look in 15 and 16, what you're going to find is this idea of remember, remember that you were a slave. Remember, you were a slave. And I think this is really important for us today. We have a lot of debate right now going on in our country about reparations. What do you do about slavery? What do you do for those that were forced to come here, were enslaved? How do we we restore relationships in our country? Because of the evil that was done through the practice of the transatlantic slave trade. A practice that God did not condone. Uh, We'll see that in a second. But how do we do this? How do we combat the mess that we're in? Well, the first part if we're gonna get to a common denominator is to remember that we're all slaves, that that we're all slaves. Even if we're doing well, even if we're using other people, you're still a slave and you're gonna pay for it. There's gonna be a reckoning, there's gonna come a day when God says, how have you been paid for? And when you stand before him, he's a a judge, he's going to judge rightly and judge righteously in an unjust world and he's gonna look and say, what payment is there? And if we stand before him and we say, well, I was a good person and I did this and I did that and I did this, that's not slave language. Slave language doesn't say that. A slave doesn't stand before their master, okay, and tell them how they should be treated and give them a list and say, look all I've done for you, you owe me. That's not a slave master relationship. That's not a bondservant master relationship. That's a business deal. And God says, you have to recognize that you all, his people in the Old Testament, were slaves in Egypt. There was no escape for you. There was no way out. There was no being a better person. You were a slave. You were stuck for 400 years. And I came in out of my grace. I didn't have to. I didn't have to choose to come in. I didn't have to choose to enter your life and to come to you. I didn't have to choose to give you my words, which is what he did. He brought them to the mountain and gave them the gift of the commandments and the gift of his word as a guide. He didn't have to do any of that. He could have said, "You're my slaves, do what I tell you when I tell you and I'm not giving you anything more than that." But that's not the heart of God. And so here's the question that we have to wrestle with. If we really are God's followers, we're going to be reminded on a regular basis how enslaved we are. It, you can't get away from it, right? Like, the alarm clock's gonna go off Monday morning, right? And you're not probably gonna pop out of bed or, and think, praise the Lord. I am so glad I have breath and life to go serve people who don't care today. I'm just, I can't wait to fix my family breakfast and all of them hustle out the door. No one says I love you. No one says thank you, and they're out the, right? Like, the reality is you're gonna wake up on Monday and you're gonna feel like a slave, You're going to feel like I have to do that, like, when does it get better? And God's like, well, it is better if you know me. And that's what he's trying to get across to his people is the pathway to his blessing that he says in this passage. And the word bless in the Old Testament, by the way, means happy. It doesn't mean like material gain. See, we've retranslated that in our culture. We've retranslated the Bible in the Greek and the Hebrew, and instead of blessing meaning joy and happiness, we've translated blessing to mean getting stuff. That is not anything what the Bible talks about. God does give us stuff, but that's not how we respond, is thank you for the stuff. We say thank you for the joy in you, the relationship. And so the pathway to blessing, God says through this passage, is the first step is you have to remember that without me, you're nothing. You're, you were a slave. You, you had no freedom. You had no choice until I came in and offered you a choice. I said, you can either stay in slavery with the Egyptians or you can follow me into a scary life. That that you're not in control of and that you're giving control up to me. You can stay in control of the Egyptians or you can have faith and believe in me. It's your choice, but you don't get out of being a slave. And so as we think through this and as we read through these passages, really the issue is we're all enslaved in some way. We are. And God's desire is to set us free to serve him. To to be people that want to be free to just serve because we're so grateful for the mess we used to be in that anything he asks us to do is better than what we knew before, right? That's key. That is like the foundational principle of what the Bible teaches. And it's why Moses says over and over again, remember, remember who you were before. Remember that without God, like constantly reminding. So let's look at 15.1. Here's what it says. He says this. At the end of every season, or seven years, you must cancel debts. This is how to cancel debt. Every creditor is to cancel what he has lent his neighbor. He is not to collect anything from his neighbor or brother, because the Lord's release of debts has been proclaimed. You may collect something from a foreigner, but you must forgive whatever your brother owes you. Okay, I want to be an Israelite. I'm in. I like this guy. I'm ready to follow I'm, I'm, I'm in fully. Where, where do I sign? Where, where do I become an Israelite? I'm, I got this, right? I mean, even the best of us, our mortgage is 15 years, right? All the car companies now extend all their loans out to seven, so I guess they aren't really beyond it yet, right? Biblical definition of, I mean, every seven years, they were to cancel all debts. You want to know how many times the people of God practiced this that we know of historically? Zero. Zero. The Bible records that this was never practiced once. This command is given in Leviticus. It's given and repeated in Deuteronomy. It is laid out for God's people, and not once did they do it. Not once, because the cost was just too much. That should break your heart. We have a God that says, look, I know that you may be in a pickle. I know that you may need to lend to one another and do these things. Learning how to repay back something is a good thing to learn. But can I just tell you, I'm a God of grace. That I will give you what you don't deserve. I won't let your neighbor take advantage of you because every seven years, the debt's cleaned. We start over. And so the neighbor can't hold it above you and say, oh, you still owe me, buddy. No, every seven years, it's all forgiven. We start a new slate This is amazing. This was never done in any ancient society on the face of the planet. This is completely brand new, crazy weird, okay? We don't even practice it anywhere in the world today because it's crazy weird. This is not how we do things. We do things by works, by measuring it up. And I loaned you and you owe me. And we get all these things. And God, from the beginning of the founding of his people, says, look, I get that you may loan and pay back and you need to learn how to do that. But can I just tell you that every seven years, you cancel it. And the foreigner still needs to pay you back. What a great evangelism tool, right? Like what a tool to say, this is our God. Our God forgives every seven years. Looks like... The people your God believes in just uses you and charges you interest, which you couldn't do biblically, by the way, either. You were not to charge your brother or sister interest at all. Interest was off limits, period. Whatever you loan them, that's what they paid you back without interest, unless it was a foreigner. And again, that's so the foreigner begins to ask, your God seems different than the gods of my people. Your God does things that are strange that... Why does he do that? Well, because we were slaves. And he wants us to remember, he wants us to remember that he set us free when we didn't deserve it. When we were in debt to him in our sin, when we were in debt to him and in debt beyond anything we could pay back, he set us free. And so every seven years, you're to have a year, a Sabbath, a rest, where everybody can just go, reset. And we won't do this today. It's too costly. Can you imagine if Christian bankers and people begin to practice this? No one would invest in their stocks. No one. So let me get this straight. I'm going to invest in your company. Okay, I'm not investing in you year six. We're not going to make anything, right? Maybe I'll invest year one and make some money, but not year six. Oh, wait, we don't charge interest? Well, that's where all the money comes from. It's from the interest. Yeah, I'm not allowed to do that. Would you like to be a part of my bank? No. I'm a part of the big banks that charge big interest, and then I get money in my back pocket, and it's all moral and good and wonderful. And that's just the way the system works, and I'm not supposed to think about it. Do you understand that all the fights we have today is this? We're talking about forgiving student loan debt. We're in debt over a trillion dollars, approaching $1.5 trillion in student loan debt. Why? Because we don't believe God. Our way is better. Our idea of how to do money is better than God's. We charge interest. The loan can never be forgiven. Any other debt in our culture, are you ready for this? Any other debt in our culture, you can declare bankruptcy and have it disappear. Except student loans. They stick with you all your life. They will garnish your tax returns until you pay them back. That's the government we're under. That's not the government of God. You see, we won't talk about these things. All we do is, well, I just want all my debts forgiven. Well, that's not what God says. God says you're to pay them back. You're to recognize that you're in debt and try to pay those back. And he even gives some really hard things here in just a moment. He says, there will be no poor among you. Well, of course there won't. If you forgive everything the seventh year, everybody starts over right? The reason we're poor is because we're in debt. Let's just be honest. Most of us are poor because we are in debt. Medical debt, house debt, car debt, student loan debt, credit card debt. The reason we're poor is because of our debt. We're not poor because God doesn't give us enough for most of us. There are some people that are caught in that, but for most of us, we're not. We're in debt because of choices that we made to believe that God wasn't enough, To believe that what we have isn't enough and I got to get more. That's just the truth. It's not right or wrong. It's just the truth. And exactly what he says, he goes, there'll be no poor poor among you, however, because the Lord is certain to bless you and the land your Lord is God is giving you to possess as an inheritance. If only. So it's an if only. He's like, if only you obey. This whole no poor thing isn't going to work unless you do my way of money. It's not going to work. I'm just telling you, it won't work if you don't forgive debts every seven years. I know your heart. I know how you manipulate people. I know what you do. So you know what? It's not going to work. Then he goes on and he says, Obey the Lord your God and be careful to follow every one of the commands I'm giving you today. When the Lord your God blesses you, as, as he promised you, you will lend to many nations, but not borrow. You will rule over many nations, but they will not rule over you. See, God understands that when you start to go into this area where there's not every seven years forgiveness and when you begin to go and you start using borrowing to solve your problems, you'll then start borrowing from people you have no business borrowing from. Welcome to credit card debt that charges you 20% interest. You have no business borrowing on credit cards. They are sharks. They're awful people. It would be better for you to get a private loan from your bank than it would be to do a credit card. They're sharks. Now, does that mean you're evil if you have credit card debt? Nope, didn't say that. But I'm telling you, they're not biblical. They're not going to forgive it. It's going to come back to haunt you. And that's exactly what he says. He goes, if you'll just listen to the way I do things, you'll be the people that get to lend to others, that get to give to others instead of looking to try to get from others you'll be people that are prepared to be givers and life givers and to call people into a grace-filled relationship with me but if you're like all of them and you're in debt to these nations then here's the problem this is what God says in Proverbs the rich rule over the poor and the borrower is a slave to the lender everybody talks about the one percent in our culture and the one percent need to pay more and the one percent need to pay more Do you realize that statistically, if you make $35,000 and live in the United States of America, you are in the top 1% of people in the world? You are the top 1%. $35,000 a year, that's all you got to bring in and live in America. Because guess what? If you go to the emergency room, they still have to treat you. Hippocratic Oath. So in other countries, you have to pay ahead of time and tell them what treatments you'll get. Just heard from one of our missionaries that, uh, that was sent out from Ball State that my daughters go to school with, and she had a medical condition. They went, and they had to demand every single treatment when they were at the hospital in the country they were in. I want this. How are you going to pay for it? Next question. Well, here it is. Okay, well, then we'll do that. Well, this is what we think. Well, could you run another test? Well, are you going to pay for it? See, that's how it works other places. Not here. So if you make $35,000 a year and you live in this country, you are the 1% of the world of people that live in extreme poverty. And yet it's not enough, and we complain, and we don't look to give. We look to just get more and borrow more, leverage more. And God's like, it just exposes your heart. That I'm not enough. You can't trust me to forgive in the seventh year. You can't trust me to set your debts free. You can't trust by setting other people's debts free. He goes on, he says, If there is a poor person among you, one of your brothers within your gates in the land the Lord your God has given you, brother or sister, you must not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted towards your poor brother. Instead, you're to open your hand to him and freely loan him enough for whatever need he has. Notice God uses the word loan. He doesn't say give him a freebie. You can give him freely. But he says you're to give him a loan. He needs to understand that you just can't take. There's a paying back. And it goes on and he says, be careful that there isn't this wicked thought in your heart. Look at this, because this is the thought. The seventh year, the year of canceling debts is near. And you are stingy towards your poor brother and give him nothing. Nothing. Because he will cry out to the Lord God against you and you'll be guilty. Right? Isn't this our heart? In this? Well, let's see. It's uh, two months till January 1st. Um, how, about, uh, how about you come back to me in two weeks? And then we'll talk about me loaning you some money. You can kind of figure out how to make it for two weeks. Because in two weeks, you know in your mind, it's the year of Jubilee starts. And if I give him the loan now... He's not going to pay it back within two weeks. There's no way. So I'll just wait. That's our entire banking system. And it's our hearts too. Where God says, No, you give freely. If you're going to give it to Him in two weeks, give it to Him now. Why are you withholding? And if there's a reason you are withholding, explain that to Him, not because you want more money. Guys, This is amazing stuff. Like these financial principles are no other book on the face of the planet teach these things. Nowhere. Nowhere. No other religious document, no other government document. Because this frees people and governments and religions don't want people free. They want to control them. Our God wants to set people free and then we twist it and say, well, I don't have to. And God knew that was going to be the case. So he lays this out multiple times in the the Old Testament to say, this is what I want your heart to be, to be a giver. He also says it's a brother. It also makes a judgment call. Is this person really a believer or not? Do they truly believe in God? Do they understand that by borrowing that they're going to pay this back? He goes on and says, give to him and don't have a stingy heart when you give. And because of this, this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in everything you do. For there will never cease to be poor people in the land. That is why I'm commanding you, you must willingly open your hand to to your afflicted and poor brother in your land. He says, look, we live in a broken world and I haven't brought you into the perfect heavenly land yet, where there will be no debts when we get to heaven. He goes, the world you live in, you're going to have poor. And you want to know why you're going to have poor? Because of you. Because we're still in it. We haven't been fully transformed because we want what we want. And he said, but you are going to have to be different. You're going to have to be willing to open your hand to your afflicted and poor brother. Do you understand that some people are purposely poor and afflicted? Just to test us. God may have made you poor and afflicted just to test other believers. Just to show what it looks like to have faith when you don't have what you want. You see this with people that are dying, that are terminal in Christ and they love God, they've surrendered their life to God and they have this peace and this hope and they tell people about it and they're not expecting to get something back from anyone. They don't know if they'll be healed or not but they're ready to go see Jesus. They kind of don't want to be healed because they know if they're healed they got to get stuck in this world another decade. So they're like, I'm ready. If God wants to heal me, that's great but I'd rather go home. That's a great perspective to have and those people are there to challenge us to ask am I really living like I'm dying? Am I really living like I understand that this life isn't all there is? Am am I treating other people understanding that this life isn't all there is? That that God wants to, to give and have grace and he wants to do it through me. This is Jesus, one of the situations, John 9, 1. Jesus was passing by and he saw a man blind from birth. This guy has a circumstance. He's been blind since he was born. He didn't choose this. It wasn't his sin that caused this. None of it. His disciples questioned him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? See, there was a false teaching that said the reason he's blind is because somebody in his past did something bad. And that's why he's the way he is. That's why we enslaved an entire race of people because we said that African-Americans were of Ham, Noah's son who was cursed, and so we could curse them because they were from Ham. That is a false teaching. It is a twisted teaching to enslave an entire ethnic group of people. And we used it. The church used it. We twisted the scriptures so that we could get what we wanted from those people. And he looks and he says, look, they're not in this situation because of that. Look at what he says. Neither this man nor his parents sinned. Now, of course they sinned. They weren't sinless people and never did anything wrong, right? He's saying the cause you're looking for isn't coming from where you think. And look what he says. This came about so that God's work might be displayed in him. I don't know about you, but if I'm the blind man, I don't like that comment. Wait, wait, I didn't choose it. You mean God chose for me to be born? Why not you, Peter? I mean, why not you, John? Why why me? So so you want me to believe that God wants me to have this? Seriously. Um, No, I'm not going there. No, I'm claiming my healing. Jesus is like, no, you don't get it. You don't get it. He says, look. It's not about all these judgments. He said he did it so that he could be set free. And what happens? Jesus spits in the mud. Spits in mud. I don't know how much spit it took, but that's really gross. He made a mud pack and rubbed it in the guy's eyes. This is one of the funniest moments in Scripture to me of all Jesus' healings. Like, can you imagine? You're there watching Jesus. He's this wonderful, you know, man, and all of a sudden he's like, boom. And spits, and then he wipes it all over a blind, they can't see what he's doing. And everybody's standing there going, oh, gross. Should we tell the guy he's got Jesus spit all over him? Oh, that's just nasty. I, okay, I don't want to be healed. If that's what you're most of you would be that way. If, G, if you knew the guy was walking up with a hawker and mud and was like going to wipe it on your, like, I'm fine. I'll be blind the rest of my life. Thank you. I'm good. He wipes it in the guy's eyes, and everybody's probably like, oh, goodness. And the guy can see. And all of a sudden, he gets dragged into the Pharisees. He gets dragged into the religious leaders. And everybody's trying to find a way to say this guy wasn't really healed. And he's like, I don't know what to tell you. I was blind. Some guy wiped stuff on me, and I can see. That Jesus guy did it. That's all I know. You know I was born blind. They bring his parents in in the story. And the parents are like, hey, we don't know what's going on. Some guy rubbed some stuff in his eye, and I can see. He's been blind his whole life. I don't know what to do. See, Jesus says the reason that was happening was not because we can all get a healing. it was to show what God can do. It was to show who He was. Look at what Galatians says. Galatians 10, or 6:10 or nine and 10 says this. "So we must not get tired of doing good, for we will reap at the proper time if we don't give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity. We must work for the good of all, especially those who belong to the household of faith. Even in the New Testament, Jesus and Paul are very careful to say, especially for believers. Especially for those who are of the household of faith, that are of the family of faith. Sure, help everyone, but especially look out for believers. Jesus was an afflicted man. He understood people's afflictions. Goes on to say, if your fellow Hebrew, a man or a woman, is sold to you and serves you six years, you must set him free in the seventh year. When we originally started the United States of America, there wasn't really slavery. There was called indentured servitude, where you would commit to come six years to serve in America, and the seventh year you would be set free and given a parcel of land to come to the new America. I wonder where they got that idea from. Maybe God, but see, that wasn't real profitable because now I want to keep more of the land for myself. So now I need slaves that I don't have to give free stuff to. And he goes on, he says, give generously. or when you set him free, do not send him away empty-handed. Give generously to him for your, from your flock, your threshing floor, your wine press. You are to give him whatever the Lord your God has blessed you with. Wait, what? I earned that. That's mine. I worked hard for it. He needs to start and work hard for it. He needs to get his life. Nope. And then he says, remember that you were a slave. Oh, he says, you already give. Whatever he's blessed. Remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. And the Lord your God bought you back, redeemed you. That is why I'm giving you this command today. I am giving you this command, the seven-year command, the set free, I'm giving this to you today so you remember that was you. You were in debt, you were in trouble, and I set you free. He goes, that's exactly why I'm giving you this command today. Look at this, but if your slave says to you, I don't want to leave you, wow, can you imagine I, I, don't, I don't want to leave you because he loves you and your family and is well off with you. Take an awl and pierce through his ear into the door and he will become your slave for life. Also treat your female slave the same way. Do not regard it as a hardship when you set him free because he worked for you for six years, worth twice the wages of a hired hand. Do the math then the Lord your God will bless you in everything you do. Can you imagine being set free and then willingly saying, I I just want to be with you. I I just want to keep serving you because I see how great of a master you are and how giving you are and how loving you are and how you give your life. I I just, I want to stay connected to you. I I don't need to start my own life. I don't need my own stuff. I, I just... I know if I stay connected to you, that's all I need. Can I just tell you, that was the mentality of a few people on this list. Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus. Christ set him free, and Paul said, I'll be a slave for you for life. Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus. Thyceus, fellow slave in the Lord. Epaphras who is one of you, a slave of Christ. James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter, a slave and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Jude, a slave of Jesus. The revelation of Jesus Christ that God gave him to show his slaves what must quickly take place, he sent it and signified through his angel to his slave, John. You see, if we are Christians, we are in indentured Servitude. As a believer, I understand that Christ has set me free. I understand what he did on the cross was to set me free. And the proper response to that is the same response of all our heroes of faith. To say, I get that there's freedom, but I get that there are those who aren't free. And I want to come back under you so we can set more people free together. Because I know there's going to be a day where I'm set free forever in heaven with you. So it's fine for me to give up my measly 70 years on earth as a slave so that I can be fully free in heaven. That's not what we're taught. Taught that slavery is this evil, terrible, awful thing. No, slavery is only awful if the master's bad. If the master is good and wonderful and gracious and isn't hoarding but is giving and gives his life, then why would you want to go anywhere else? But to be under his protection, under his care, where he would let you have a family and raise them and take care of them as his own. See, be careful that you don't fall into the trap. What so many fall into. The word slave is used 151 times in the New Testament. 100, now, we've cleaned it up and say servant. Uh-uh. The word in Greek was offensive. To be called a doulos meant you were a slave. You weren't free. And the Greeks were offended by the word doulos. Just like we're offended by the word slavery in our culture. It's offensive. It's meant to be offensive to question what we care about and where our heart is. And so 151 times in the New Testament that says we're set free in Christ, the word slave is used. He goes like this and goes on. He says, you must consecrate to the Lord your God every firstborn male produced by your herd and flock. You're not to put the firstborn of your oxen to work or shear the firstborn of your flock. Each year you and your family are to eat it before the Lord your God and the place the Lord chooses, we talked about that last week. Our message was the place the Lord chooses. But if there is a defect in the animal, if it is lame or blind or has any serious defect, you must not sacrifice it to the Lord your God. Eat it within your gates. Both the unclean person and the clean may eat it as though it were a gazelle or a deer, but you must not eat its blood. Pour it on the ground like water. This is a complete reference to the person of Jesus Christ. That he is the firstborn, which we'll read in just a second. That his blood was shed, and so you don't want to take blood. All the other cultures drank blood. They they, they used blood in their sacrifices and wiped it on them when they would get ready for war. God's like, no, for you, the blood is to be poured out. Because someday I'm going to pour out my blood for you. It's going to spill to the ground. And so you don't touch, the blood is mine. And then he goes on and he says, look at this. He says, even if the animal isn't perfect, you don't get off. You don't get to, like, keep it. No, just throw a party instead in your neighborhood. (laughs) So you don't have to travel all the way. Man, this this one-year lamb, it's not looking too good. Man, I'm going to put this to work. I mean, he's got a little defect right here. I could still use him to pull a good cart. I mean, he's still strong. He's just got a bad little thing here, and one ear's missing. So I'll use that one in my field because he's a good one. Nope, kill it, eat it. As a symbol of God giving the best he had, which was his son, you give your best. And if that's your best, give your best. If your best has a little defect, that's okay. God says, still give it. I'll still accept it. I want you to eat it together and rejoice in me. The unclean and the clean people will come together to eat together. You don't go, oh, those unclean. I don't want them in my house. I don't want them near. Nope, you're all going to eat together. The perfect lamb, though, is going to go to the temple. If you have one that's prized, you can take that to the temple. Colossians 1, 15 says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible, the invisible, whether thrones, dominions, or rulers, authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead so that he might come to have first place in everything. It's all about him. And all these laws are pointing to him because of the sacrifice he made. Jesus left heaven to become our bond slave, die a cruel death under our master hands when we said crucify him, and came back to life to say, you didn't get rid of the plan of God, you fulfilled it. And there can be life for you too when you feel like you failed And disaster, and when you remember you were a slave, when I remember I was a slave, I came and I served and I gave and I went to the cross. When you remember, you're gonna do the same thing knowing that there's eternal life on the other side for those who trust in me. 16.1 says, observe the month of Abib and celebrate the Passover to the Lord your God because the Lord your God brought you out of Egypt. You were a slave by night in the month of Abib." sacrifice to Yahweh your God, a Passover animal from the herd or flock in the place where the Lord chooses to have his name dwell. You must not eat leavened bread. Leavened is yeast. The yeast was a symbol of sin in the Old Testament, that the bread would rise and it would be corrupted. He said, no yeast. He says, why? Because for seven days you're to eat unleavened bread with it, the bread of hardship, because you left the land of Egypt in a hurry. They left Egypt so fast they couldn't prepare yeast bread. They just had to eat without letting the bread rise, because you left the land so that you may remember, look at this, remember for the rest of your life the day you left the land of Egypt. We're supposed to remember what God had delivered us from. Can I tell you, when I get in the most trouble in my life and I struggle the most in my life, it's because I think I deserve something. I've worked hard, I've done the right thing. God, why haven't you come through for what I want? God's like, wait, who, Who gave you that breath a second ago? How about that heartbeat, right? That that heartbeat, who who gave that to you? Oh, that's me. That's right. See, whenever I get in trouble, I cross this line where I forget that I was in the land of Egypt. I was a slave to the mess of my life and God set me free. And when I remember that, all of a sudden, everything I have, my breath, my heart, my money, my house, it's not mine. It's his The way I spend my money, it's not mine, it's his. So what do you want me to do? I don't look around and say, well, they have and they have and they have and they have and they have. See, that's what gets me in trouble. Well, they do and they do, so I can't. That's what the children of Israel did, and it's why it put them in such a huge mess. Because they never said, what did God say? They believed the original lie of the Garden of Eden. When Satan came to Adam and Eve and said, did God really say? Well, maybe he didn't. No, he really said. See, we're supposed to remember by doing this that Jesus was our Passover lamb. We don't have to sacrifice lambs anymore because Jesus is called the lamb of God. It's the favorite way God refers to his son in the book of Revelation. Jesus is the lamb of God that was slain for us. And so we should still celebrate Passover, folks. We call it Easter because we don't like the name Passover because the Catholics didn't want the Jews to have any credit for anything, so they called it Easter after a female goddess. It's Literally, what happened? It's why the name Easter is there. It's Passover. And we forget that that's what it was. This is a thousands and thousands of years history that points to Jesus. Jesus died on Passover. His blood was poured out on the ground, on the cross, on Passover. Goes on and he says, no yeast is to be found anywhere in your territory for seven days. In other words, sin. Get rid of the sin. If you understand what the Passover means, if you understand that God delivered you, if you understand that he's forgiven you, you'll want to get the yeast out. You don't want yeast around. You don't want it to corrupt anything. And none of the meat you sacrifice in the evening of the first day is to remain until morning. You're not to sacrifice the Passover animal in any of the towns the Lord your God has giving you. You must only sacrifice the Passover animal at the place where Yahweh your God chooses to have his name dwell. Do this in the evening as the sun sets, as the same day, at the same time of day that you departed from Egypt. That's exactly when Christ died. That's when he was crucified. At that moment. At that time. They had to hurry and get him off the cross to bury him, because they knew the past, this next Sabbath was coming. There was a double Sabbath. They knew the next Sabbath was coming, and they're like, we got to get him off the cross fast. Usually they left people on the cross for days as a symbol of you don't want to be this guy. God fulfilled exactly in Christ what he said would happen. The Passover lamb would not be buried, boom, gone. You're to cook and eat it in the place the Lord your God chooses, and you're to return to your tents in the morning you must not eat unleavened bread for six days. On the seventh day, there's to be a solemn assembly to the Lord your God. You must not do any work. You're to count seven weeks, counting the weeks from the time the sickle is first per, uh, put to the standing grain. You're to celebrate the festival of weeks to the Lord your God with a free will offering that you give in proportion to how the Lord your God has blessed you. Do you see that? You're to give in proportion to the Lord your God has blessed you. This is a trick question. How much do you think you're blessed? It'll show up in how much you give. I had grandparents that were the most giving people in the world. They had nothing. When they died, all of us grandkids got to pick one thing. There was no inheritance except the inheritance of their faith, the inheritance of an impact on their community and the people that came to Christ through them. They left it all here for us. (laughs) They knew they weren't taking it beyond. My grandparents lived this out. They believed they were so blessed. They just gave freely. They'd go to the basement, get canning jars, and hand them out. My grandma would fix cookies and pass them out to any boy riding by on his bike. She'd fix 500 sorghum cookies and have them ready to go, and the family would come and get them. She had a little window. I still remember this. You walk into her kitchen, and there was this little window. You could pull up right there by the window and knock on it, and Grandma would look out at you and hand you a cookie because it was right by the road, like it was two feet off the road, like it was that close to their house. You're like, Grandma. She opened the door. Hi there. She gave you a cookie. Have a good time, and then take off on your bike. Why? Because she believed she was so blessed. That's what you do if you believe you're blessed. I can just give because I just believe God's going to take care of it. Doesn't mean we don't plan. Doesn't mean we don't prepare. Grandma and grandpa were prepared to give. They had a basement full of canned goods. They had a garage, a barn full of potatoes. They, they, they prepared. They worked hard to be able to give. Goes on and he says, rejoice. Before Yahweh your God and the place he chooses to have his name dwell, you, your son and daughter, your male and female slave, the Levite within your gates, as well as the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow among you. That pretty much covers everybody. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt. (laughs) Carefully follow these statutes. In other words, if you don't remember you were slaves, you're not going to be a giver. You're going to be a taker. Because you're afraid you're going to lose something. He says rejoice. You know why he says rejoice? Because for most of you and for me... I see it as a burden to have to give. It's just so hard. And they don't have to give. No, rejoice that you get to. Rejoice that God's provided enough that, that you can give. He goes on and he says, You're to celebrate the Festival of Booths for seven days when you've gathered in everything from your threshing floor and wine press. Rejoice during your festival, your son and your daughter, your male and female slave, as well as the Levite, the foreigner and the fatherless, and the widow within your gates. You're to hold a seven-day festival for the Lord your God and the place he chooses, because the Lord your God will bless you in all your produce and all your work of your hands, and you will have abundant joy. He says, if you want joy and happiness, right? If you want joy and happiness, look at what he says. If you want joy and happiness, it's pretty simple. Rejoice by giving. Be a giver. You see, joy has nothing to do with what we have. It has everything to do with how we respond to what we have. That's joy. Joy is how do I respond to the little I have or even the much that I have. That's real joy to say God did this, not me. And it's not mine and I'm just a conduit. That's exactly what he's talking about. And you're to come and and celebrate. Can you imagine if we had, we wouldn't be having the 1% conversation if we did this. It wouldn't even be a conversation. We'd just be givers and avoid debt and do these things and just say, God, I want to honor you. See, blessing is not your circumstance. Blessing comes from the heart. Blessing isn't about what you have. It's not about circumstances. It's about how you see things. All your males are to appear three times a year before the Lord your God. In other words, the men are supposed to lead in being the givers. They're supposed to lead in laying down their lives. They're supposed to lead in planning to go to the temple three times a year and to save the money so they can go and take their lamb and sacrifice with their sons. You take the lead you're going to go three times a year. Now sometimes they all went as a family. We see this in Luke chapter 2. Jesus' whole family, extended family went to celebrate at the temple together. The whole family could go. For Joseph to be able to take the whole family, man, he had to do some serious planning. Somebody got to take care of the fields. Something's got to be like that. I gotta feed all these people when we're in Jerusalem. Like, there's a there's a lot of planning that goes into taking the whole thing. Joseph's like, I know that the law just requires me and Jesus go to the temple, but I want everybody there. I want to plan so everybody can go. And they're such having a great party. They get a day's journey away and they look around and go, Where's Jesus? They lost Jesus. You can read it in Luke 2.52. They're having so much fun. They're having a great time as a family, traveling along. All of a sudden, look around and go, Wait, did anybody get Jesus? Oh like, we lost him. Oh, my. Maybe we should go find the Son of God. Right? It's a hilarious story. But that's because they were obeying this. And then they come and find him, and they looked all over the city, and Jesus looks at him and says, why didn't you check my father's house first? I love that. Right? He wasn't disrespectful. He's like, I know that you were searching for me everywhere. I didn't even know you were leaving. I was so just wanting to be with my dad in the temple and worship him and hang out. And like, I just, I just lost track of time. I've been here. And you guys wandered all around the city? Where did you think I'd be? Like, it's this beautiful, beautiful picture. He says, appoint judges and officials for your tribes and all the towns the Lord your God is giving you. They are to judge the people with righteous judgment. Do not deny justice or show partiality to anyone. Do not accept a bride, for it blinds the eyes of the wise and twists the words of the righteous. Pursue justice and justice alone, so that you'll live and possess the land your God is giving you. We have an entire system set up on lobbying. You know what lobbying is? Bribery. Our entire government system is set up on bribery. If you don't have a nest egg to run an election, you can't get reelected. Because we'll just go for whoever's the most on Twitter. We will. We won't ask what their policies are. We won't ask what they believe. Who's the most popular? I vote for that guy. Who do I see his face all the time? I vote for that guy. He seems like he knows what he's talking about. There's a lot of people who know it. And we'll do it hook, line, and sinker with him as the church and it's ridiculous he says look look for those who pursue justice no one's going to pursue it perfectly let's just be honest no one is but do they care about justice do not deny justice or show partiality it's easy to show partiality isn't it? it's easy to feed your kid and let somebody else's kid go hungry it's another thing to tell your kid, you're going to be hungry because this other kid needs it worse than you. You'll have a meal tomorrow. He goes on he says, man, this is what we, you got to have. you got to have leaders that are going to hold you accountable because you're, you're going to want to cheat. You're going to want to cheat the system. You're going to want to not do these things and celebrate the seven years and, and do the festivals and, and celebrate and rejoice with me. And once you start going down that path, it's just going to be a train wreck. He says, do not set up an Asherah of any kind of wood next to the altar. You will build for the Lord your God. And do not set up a sacred pillar. The Lord your God hates that. We're always trying to build tall stuff, right? Isn't it funny that when we are, not funny, isn't it interesting that when we are attacked on 9-11, they took out the two tallest buildings? Oh, you think you're so powerful and tall and mighty. Okay. Eight guys in two planes can bring you to your knees, America. Like that. How's your Asherah pole? It's in ruins. God's like, don't do it. I want you to trust me by faith. Can I just tell you, sometimes the cross can become this to people. That they wear a cross, that they have a cross on, and the reason they have that cross on, okay, the reason they have the cross on is because they think it brings them some kind of power. Right? The crucifix, right? That's evil. That's this. Do not do that. Do not pull out a symbol and use it as, no, that, that's not biblical. God says, you trust me, don't trust the symbol. Look at what Galatians 3.13 says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us because it is written, everyone who is hung on a tree is cursed. Christ was hung on our Asherah pole the pull we set up in our sin to be in the way before God, our idol that we had. And Christ was crucified on that tree on our behalf to say, I'll take it all down for you because I love you that much. He goes on, he says, you must not sacrifice to the Lord your God an ox or a sheep with any defect or serious defect for that's detestable to the Lord your God. In other words, you can celebrate, but you can't make it detestable. He goes on. If a man or a woman among you is one of your towns that the Lord your God will give you, is discovered doing evil in the sight of the Lord your God and violating his covenant, and has gone to worship other gods by bowing down to the sun, moon, or all the stars of the sky, which I have forbidden, and you are told or hear about it, you must investigate it thoroughly. This is key. Investigate. This is what we do in our judicial system. Innocent until proven guilty. Unfortunately, today, it's guilty until proven innocent. As soon as social media says you're guilty, you're guilty until you're proven innocent, and then nobody knows you're innocent because we don't post that. (laughs) We only post the the, the great stories of guilt. He goes on and he says, if you're told or hear about it, you must investigate. If the report turns out to be true, that this detestable thing has happened in Israel, you must bring out to your gates the man or woman who has done this evil thing and stone them to death. Listen, there's an opportunity for forgiveness. This says investigate thoroughly. If they came out and they said, I'm sorry, I didn't didn't realize what I was doing, I understand now, I I repent, will the priest make a sacrifice for me in the temple? I, I know I deserve to die, you can stone me. God would forgive. You want to know how I know that? Because when the woman was caught in adultery, that's exactly what Jesus, the son of God, did. He knew she was deserving of death. And he said, you who were without sin cast the first stone. You didn't investigate thoroughly. Where's the man she was sleeping with? You only brought the woman. And Jesus said, we're not doing justice this way. That's not how my father taught it. Drop your stones. And they dropped and walked away. And she looked at him and, He said, now sin no more. He didn't say, go back to your job, have a good life. No, he said, stop doing this. I may not be here to rescue you next time. He goes on and he says this, the one condemned to die is to be executed on the testimony of two or three witnesses. I love this. He says, you can't just go by one. You got to do an investigation. There have to be witnesses No one is to be executed on the testimony of a single witness. The witness hands are to be the first in putting him to death. And after that, the hands of all the people. In other words, the accuser is going to have to take the life first. None of this sanitary stuff. You want him dead? You're going to have to do the first part. You're going to have to be inspected. You're going to have to stand before everyone and go, I'm so righteous I can kill him. See how that works for you. See, this system we look at and we're like, wow, this is really mean. It's like, oh, wait, this kind of makes sense. Because he goes on and he says, you must purge the evil from you. If a case is due too difficult for you concerning bloodshed, lawsuits, or assaults, cases disputed at your gates, you must go to the place the Lord your God chooses, appeal to the higher court. You're to go to the Levitical priesthood, the top, and to the judge who presides at the time, ask, and they will give you a verdict in the case. You must abide by the verdict they give you at the place the Lord chooses. Be careful to do exactly as they instruct you. You must abide by the instruction they give you and the verdict they announce to you. That's the Supreme Court. Do not turn to the right or to the left from the decision they declare to you. The person who acts arrogantly, refusing to listen, either to the priest who stands there serving the Lord your God or to the judge, must die. You must purge the evil from Israel. Then all the people will hear about it. Be afraid and no longer behave arrogantly. We're told capital punishment isn't a deterrent. It is a deterrent when it's done properly and it's used. It's a huge deterrent. I don't want to end up like Bob, right? How do I not end up like Bob? I just saw him get stoned. He says, look, this is how you're going to have to do it. And are you ready for this? We look at this and say, no one deserves this. We all deserve this. We're all a bunch of slave to sin people that'll do whatever we want. The reason God kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden is because you and I'd be sitting on a recliner next to the tree of life, eating all day, telling God to go, go, go away and do what he wants to do. We would. We'd be sitting right next to the tree of life being like, I can sit here and eat all day, God. You can't do nothing to me. That's what kids do today. I'll take you to CPS. I'll show you. Arrogant. And we're just as bad. We raised them. Who do you think taught them this stuff? They watched us. (laughs) Goes on and he says, this is what happened with Jesus. See, this is the beauty about Jesus as we wrap up. The beauty about Jesus is this. Jesus obeyed the Old Testament perfectly. He even obeyed these last verses we read. Because here's Jesus, betrayed by Judas, and brought before the Supreme Court, the Sanhedrin. But Jesus kept silent. They kept accusing him, and he kept silent. Then the high priest said to him, that's Caiaphas, by the living God, I place you under oath. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. They're trying to find a way to kill him. And if he says he's God, we can kill him because that's blasphemy. And so he looks at him and he says, I put you under oath. That's what we do. Put people under oath. I put you under oath. Are you the Messiah, the Son of God? Look at what Jesus does. You have said it. Caiaphas, you gave your verdict just then. You just called me Messiah, Son of God. Thank you very much. See, Jesus is submitting to terrible authorities. Jesus so perfectly followed the law when he had the right to overthrow these jerks and tell them and tear down the temple and start over with a new group of people, he still submitted to them. Look at what he goes on to say. You have said it, Jesus told him, but I tell you the truth. I tell you, in the future, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, he blasphemed." Why do we still need witnesses? Oh, so we're not going to follow the Old Testament, Mr. High Priest. No, no two witnesses to accuse because they couldn't find any accusers. Well, We're just going to skip over the Old Testament so you can have your way and kill the Son of God. That's how this is going to go down. And Jesus still submitted, look, now you've heard the blasphemy. What is your decision? They answered, he deserves death. Then they spit in his face and beat him and others slapped him and they drug him off to be crucified on our behalf. Jesus submitted to the law of Deuteronomy to the point of death on our behalf. He fulfilled the complete law when you and I would have said, this isn't right, I'm out of here. And Jesus said, no, I'm going to complete it all the way. And all of these guys that think they're righteous are going to see they're not. You see, if you remember that you're a slave, you can go before the Sanhedrin. And when they accuse you, you can say things like this and say, do what you want. I know I'm coming back to life. I know God's plan. I already settled it in the garden a minute ago when I said, not my will, but your will be done. This is what Romans says. I want you to be encouraged by Romans 6. This is Paul writing in the New Testament about slavery. He says, For we know that our old self was crucified with him, with Christ, in order that sin's dominion over the body may be abolished, so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin. Since a person who has died is free from sin's claims, so you too consider yourselves Dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Consider yourself dead to sin, but alive in Christ. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its desires. See, we always want to follow our heart, follow our desires. Your heart's bad. Your desires are bad. Most of the time, unless you have Christ, And you say, God, I want what you desire. And then he tells you what he desires. Don't you know that if you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, that's what we just read about. That's what this whole passage is about. Who are you going to offer yourself to? God and his ways or the world and its ways? Which is it going to be? That's what Deuteronomy is saying. That's what those chapters are saying. And then he says, don't you know that if you offer yourself to someone as an obedient slave, you are slaves of the one you obey. We declare who our master is by the choices we make. either of sin leading to death or obedience leading to righteousness. And then look at this, verse 17, Paul says this, but thank God, rejoice, rejoice, but thank God that although you used to be slaves of sin, you obeyed from the heart that pattern of teaching that you uh, were transferred to. And having been liberated from sin, you became enslaved to righteousness. That's what God's doing in Deuteronomy. I want you to be enslaved to the right things. I want you to be like, this is awesome. I want to do this as much as I can. And he goes on and he says, but now since you have been liberated from sin and have become enslaved to God, You have your fruit, which results in sanctification. That means becoming more like God, more set apart, looking more and more different from the world around you. And the end is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death. But Yahweh who gives, the gift of God, of Yahweh, is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Yahweh is giving you. The question is, will we take it? Will we believe that he's a better master than the ones we want for ourselves? The master we want to be in our own lives. Can you imagine if we actually Loved God's law, not in a way that I believe that by doing it I would be more righteous. Romans 6 says that's impossible. That's the wrong heart. That's you trying to earn God's love and earn his favor, and that is despicable to him. It's coming to him saying, I got nothing. I am a slave. I need you desperately to forgive me to set me free help please and God says I would love to and I will give you the power and the Holy Spirit I'll give you the body of Christ the church I'll give you the things necessary so you can live for me and invite other people to have their debts canceled That you can go out in the world say my debts have been canceled the year of jubilee is here come celebrate with me that's our message that's what Christ did He says, remember that you were a slave and remember that I have set you free.